let's open God's Word to 1 Kings uh, chapter 16. <clears throat> 1 Kings chapter 16, we begin to read at verse uh, 29, and we read through chapter 17, verse 7, and our text is verses 2 to 7 of chapter 17. <clears throat> God's holy word, reading at chapter 16 of 1 Kings and verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and worshipped and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And then follows our text in 1 Kings chapter 17, at verse 2. Elijah has just made this command, There shall be neither rain nor do until uh, I say so by the word of the Lord. And verse 2 we read, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. God's holy word for us this morning. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we live by that sure conviction that the Lord always does everything well and good for his church, and that includes you and me. Even when we go through very rough times, hard times, and trials, even then we expect that the Lord is somehow working all these things for our good as well. The government of Jesus Christ over his church is always perfect, always is. Nevertheless, we also know the testimony of Scripture that the ways of the Lord are past finding out. 
Paul, for example, says in Romans 11, verse 34, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? And as we see the narrative of Elijah unfolding before us here, we perhaps have questions that are of our similar nature. What really is the Lord doing here? What is the mind of the Lord as he is now working in the land of Israel? And he comes up with this rather strange or unexpected command that Elijah must go away from the scene. He must depart and no longer be God's prophet, at least for the time being. Back in verse 1, we see how Elijah suddenly had to appear to confront Ahab in his sinfulness. And now suddenly in the next verse, he is told to leave. He must, he must disappear, in fact. What is going on? Well, our theme, very simply this morning, congregation, God commands his faithful servant to go into hiding. What is God really up to here? Well, we see in the first place that the covenant community will suffer a famine of the word as well. God's covenant community, the church of Jesus Christ in those days was already beginning to suffer from a lack of rain. From the book of James, we know that it was not going to rain for three years and six months, and that already was taking place. So in a short time, we all know that the food supply would begin to to, 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 to run scarce and to dry up. That's how things were at that time. We read back at verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. Um, That's the situation. Not only was there going to be a famine of food in Israel, but a famine of the word as well. Elijah is told to leave the covenant community immediately. He is to go to that tiny brook, the brook Cherith, which runs uh, westward from Gilead as a tributary into the Jordan River. That word Cherith suggests a kind of a narrow ravine or a kind of a trench that would quickly fill up with water during the rainy season or when the snow begins to melt quickly in the wintertime and suddenly you have a rushing torrent full of water. But it can also kind of quickly dry up too. That's the sense of that name here. And to that region in Gilead, Elijah must go. To that remote and mountainous terrain, God commands him to go and to hide. To actually go and find a place to hide. Um, we, we read there in verse, uh, in verse 2 and 3, he must depart uh, from the scene. Well, this makes us wonder. A prophet is normally supposed to stay on the scene. He is supposed to proclaim God's word. He is to bring the promises of the covenant to God's people. He is also to announce the covenant curses that come upon his people if they become disobedient and turn away from God. The prophet is to maintain God's people in covenant fellowship with him by ministering God's holy word to them. 
the prophet is not to uh, is not called upon to run and to hide. He's supposed to stay and preach. That's the very nature of his task to preach God's word to God's people. We think, for example, of Jonah, who did the opposite. He ran away from the Lord. He abandoned his calling, and God had to call him back to task to to finish to finish his calling to go to the Ninevites. But here we see the opposite happening at verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. He's supposed to go to a place where nobody can find him. He is to intentionally hide himself. And that means one thing, Israel is going to lose a very, very important prophet that had been sent to call them to repentance. Israel is going to experience a famine of the word of God as well. Now Elijah goes away, not because he's afraid of King Ahab. Ahab has not threatened to kill him. Elijah had come very bold and strong into the palace to confront the king. He would have wanted, we would think, to stay and preach and bring God's people back to to faith and to repentance before God and to maintain covenant fellowship with their God. And so Elijah didn't go away because he was afraid of Ahab. Indeed, God had sent him to Ahab for that very purpose, to confront him with regard to his wickedness and to his idolatry and how he was leading God's people further and further away from from the Lord. And now, without an explanation, Elijah must disappear. He must simply go to the brook Cherith, to the east, outside the boundaries of the inhabited part of Israel, and there he is to hide. And we might still wonder, why is this to be the case? Well, God has his reasons. We know that Israel already for a long time had not been wanting to hear the word of God. They had not been wanting to keep the precepts of the covenant of grace. They were very concerned and very happily uh, wanting to worship the Lord through the false uh, gods, uh, uh, calves that Jeroboam had set up a long time ago in Dan and Bethel. They were quite happy to comply with this new form of religion, this perversion of the truth that was started by Jeroboam. And so for a long time, they already had not been trusting in God. They had been looking for their help and their prosperity elsewhere. And now of late, Uh, Ahab, having married Jezebel, had introduced Baal worship into the land of Israel. It had become the state religion, so to speak, in the land of Samaria. He had built a a temple for Baal and where Baal was to be worshipped. And everybody else seemed to happily comply with the new religion and to be trusting in Baal rather than in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so it seemed that the people were not at all missing the word of God or the clear and the true voice of the prophet whom he had sent. And so God gives them what they want, a famine of the word as well. 
congregation, we see God here separating himself from his people when he sends his own word bearer away and tells him to go into hiding. This is something so contrary to the whole essence of the church, isn't it? That God is the one who sends his servants to his church. They need the word of God. They need the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so this cannot help but be seen as a sign of God's judgment upon his wayward people, bringing judgment and punishment upon them in this way. What a thing we have going on here. Physical famine is one thing, but a spiritual famine is far worse. That has everlasting consequences. I trust you may have heard the words of Hosea 4, verse 6. Hosea becomes a prophet years down the road. Hosea said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And that's the truth. Israel here was destroying herself. She was engaging in spiritual suicide. God never abandons his people, brothers and sisters, unless they first abandon him. That is what had been happening already for for quite some time. And in the process, Israel was robbing herself of all the privileges and the blessings of the covenant of grace that had at its purpose, of course, to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was going to come in the fullness of time and save his people from their sins. That's what God's people should have been hoping in and listening for and wanting to be consoled by. Isn't it one of the great blessings of the covenant to simply hear the word of God? Isn't that why we come to the house of the Lord on the Lord's day? Can you imagine if we came to church and we never, and we never heard the word of God? Or the minister just didn't show up? He had suddenly disappeared as well? What would happen to, to God's people? Is not the word of God the word of life? The word that has been made manifest in the incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't help but think of one time when the disciples, uh, midway through Jesus' ministries, said to him in John 6, verse 68, when so many people were already disillusioned with the Lord Jesus Christ and were departing from him. And they said to him, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The disciples realized that without the word of the Lord coming from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, they too would perish. They too would lose their hope. They too would not know what that salvation would would consist of and what it would be. Brothers and sisters, if there's a famine of the word of God and if a people refuse that word, that can only seal their condemnation and their death. If you would shut out the word of God from your lives, you could never expect any more blessings from the Lord until you repent. And if not, you would continue to drift further and further away from the truth into unbelief and and ungodliness and the curses of God's holy covenant. And so you see what kind of a situation Elijah was in. 
he had brought the word of God faithfully to Ahab, and what a word of God it was. Verse 1, that's all we have there. There shall be uh, neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That already was enough to, to shake up King Ahab and the people from their lethargy and from their own wickedness and their own foolishness and their own atheistic way of living. The word of God was faithfully brought to the king, and he and all God's people should have humbled themselves before that word of God in true faith and with sincere repentance. But we see Elijah, he too had to humble himself before the word of God as well. Strange as it might be, he too had to accept this word of God for himself and obey it as well. Literally, verse 3 and 4, Elijah had to obey. When God says, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan, you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Yes, God had commanded his faithful servant to go into hiding, but it was so that he would also preserve him, preserve his obedient prophet, yes, indeed, even outside the covenant community. We see in the second place how Elijah's own faith now is tested. Elijah's own obedience is demanded as well. Even this unlikely thing to to be removed from the action, from his present ministry, to not be able to fill it for now, and wondering what is the Lord doing. Nevertheless, God's word stands. God's God's word must be kept. He says, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. God is going to take care of his obedient prophet. He is going to preserve him, even if it means taking him to a desolate place, far from all the comforts of home, far from all the comforts he should have been experiencing from God's covenant people, but had not been. And he's supposed to go way out into the wilderness, so to speak, out to this brook of water, and this brook of water will will do just fine for him. And there he will find a ravine where he can take shelter, and that will be just fine for him too. And he will have to rely on the ravens. They will do as well. They will bring him food, uh, meat and bread in the morning and in the evening. And his water supply will be from the brook. That will do as well. What God has said is going to work out just fine for Elijah. And God will preserve his servant in this manner. Congregation, we are confronted with a biblical principle here that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Elijah heard the word of the Lord, and he now had to live by that word of the Lord. Come what may, it doesn't matter what God's word says. He had to follow and to accept. 
We think of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. When he was in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, and Jesus said to him, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus had to live by the same principle. Here did Elijah, and guess what? So all of us too, to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. We must as well. And Elijah obeyed. He obeyed. And isn't this one of the chief characteristics of our Christian faith? It's really very simple to simply obey the word of the Lord that is spoken to our hearts. I don't care what page of the scriptures you find it on, but to obey the word of the Lord, a sure sign of your Christian faith and of your love for God, your love for Christ. That's what Elijah did. Notice verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. Notice three verbs here in verse 5. He went, he did, and he lived. Verbs are always very important parts of a sentence. They describe action. They often describe obedience, sometimes disobedience, but they're very important words that are descriptive of our faith. Elijah went, and he did, and he lived, all according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook. Again, a kind of thing that somehow doesn't seem quite right because it was the responsibility of God's covenant people to always care for their prophets and the priests whom God had sent and all the Levites who served in his temple. It was their responsibility to always care for God's servants. To them, the tithe was set aside so that they also could live. And uh, in this way, the prophets and the priests of the Lord brought their word to God's people and they found their home with God's people. But if God's people were not interested in their words and their sacrifices and would shut them out, why then God's prophets and priests would not find much of a home there either. And so here we see God doing something very special. Though Elijah is not given a home to live in anymore in the land of Israel. God will provide a home for him away from home. Isn't that something? God is not going to abandon his faithful servant. Elijah will, of course, not remain near God's altars, but he will still remain near to God, even by the brook Cherith. And that's another wonderful a biblical principle, to have a hiding place near to God, even though it might be very, very far away from our homes. It makes me think of that New Testament concept in, in Colossians 3, how our lives are hid together with Christ, to be near to him. A hiding place with God is far better than a home far away from him. Contrast Elijah here now with the false prophets of Baal. In chapter 18, we will 
learn how the false prophets were being fed at the table of Jezebel in Samaria in the palace. Meanwhile, here is God's one lowly prophet being fed at God's table in the wilderness. And that, I dare say, is far better than all the feasting that the false prophets could ever enjoy at Jezebel's table. And so we see, yeah, what is going on? Well, God, having commanded his servant to go into hiding, is still very intent in preserving him as well, even outside this covenant community. Perhaps we might be thinking, well, couldn't God maybe have sent one of his angels to, to rescue and to provide food for Elijah? Or maybe some other person that would periodically come out to the, to the brook there and bring him food? But God instead chose to send ravens, wild birds to bring him bread and meat in the morning and the same thing every night. And he has the supply of water in the brook to quench his thirst, to keep him alive. Here we see God's natural care for Elijah by simply saying, here, there's water in the brook, you can drink it. That seems quite normal and natural to us. But also his supernatural care so that Elijah knows this isn't just kind of happening kind of by chance and I'm still able to care for myself. No, because God sends these ravens. And here's the thing, if God can shut the heavens so that it doesn't rain for three years and six months, if God can do that, he certainly can also send these wild birds who normally kill their prey in order to feed their young. He can use those same kind of birds to feed his obedient servants far away from God's people. Isn't that a miraculous sign? Isn't that surely something not normal? This is no coincidence that ravens would do such a thing regularly, day after day, bread and bread and meat to, to bring to God's servant. This, this congregation indicates God is the one who is busy here. He is working out all things good for, for his people and in particular for Elijah. Another thing to note here, these ravens, we're... Were, were designated as unclean birds. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 15, God calls these ravens even an abomination, something you weren't even supposed to touch, have nothing to do with. So God had designated them. They were unclean. And now God takes something that is unclean and naturally abominable to him because he says so, and he can sanctify those birds and use them for holy and noble purposes to serve his church. Isn't that an amazing biblical principle as well? Doesn't that reflect on each one of us? How the Lord can take us who are also naturally unclean and unsuitable and sanctify us and use us for noble purposes in his church. We ask the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too strange for him to do? No, not at all. When he goes about to accomplish his purposes in redemption and for the holiness and the, and the sanctification of his people and for his glory. Here again we see God providing food in the wilderness. 
when have we heard of that before? Wasn't it for 40 years the Lord provided food in the wilderness for his people? And so we, we see here God, in a sense, very much according to character, and yet doing something that is strange and unsuspect. Un, un, we were not expecting it, and yet God will have his way, won't he? His ways indeed are past finding out, but they are very good nonetheless, as he keeps his church. Well, congregation, might we think here that we have another biblical truth or a lesson that uh, somehow all Christians will be rescued by God when they get into such horrible straits? Is that a truth? Well, I would say yes and no. We know that so many of God's prophets at this same time were being rounded up by Queen Jezebel and were being slaughtered, put to death. We see the horrible state of the church in those days. And isn't it the case that over the centuries, countless prophets and servants of the Lord and Christians have been persecuted to death and God did not, quote, rescue them either? We think of the 7,000 in Israel who had not yet bowed the knee to Baal and they were suffering from scarcity of food. Some of them would, would be starving as well very soon. The point to be made here is that the righteous do suffer with the unrighteous in times of warfare or times of oppression and disaster. All these things indeed come from the hand of the Lord. But the key thing here, congregation, is this, is that God preserves his obedient prophets. Why? Because he's pleased to preserve his word. He's pleased to preserve the office of the ministry, the, the preaching of the gospel. God was not going to let the light of the gospel here be extinguished. He was still merciful. He was still uh, stretching out his hand to his people to, to, to bring them to repentance, even while his judgments were coming upon them at the same time. God was still concerned about his wayward children, and so he preserved the office of the prophet. God continues to preserve the office of the ministry of the word even in these days, even in this 22nd, 21st century after the coming of the Lord Jesus. He still has preserved the ministry of the word of God by which his people have life. What a blessing. In the coming months, you will probably experience a little bit of that to a certain degree when your pastor is going to leave and you will have other pastors on the pulpit, to be sure, but the servant of the Lord is being taken from here to another place and you'll be wanting very much to have that ministry of the word function again and to have your own pastor again. That's how it is supposed to be for the good of the church. And God is merciful to provide again and again and again faithful men we can thank the lord to see so many young ministers rising up and hearing the call and becoming faithful preachers for the next generation to come and and so forth and so here we see the lord again uh, preserving his word in in very very difficult times and so elijah is going to live to see another day to present god's word again to manifest something of his glory and of his grace, his mercy in Christ to his people. 
and to encourage them through these very difficult days in which they were living. But would they listen when he came back again? Would they humble themselves before the word of the Lord and turn their backs on Baal and say, Lord, you are God, Lord, you are God. At times it seems like the church hangs only from a shoestring, and yet it hangs from the hand of God. And that's enough, isn't it? And underneath are the everlasting arms, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 33. What a thing, congregation, to to, to really see what's going on here, how the Lord uses the birds of the air and he rules over them to preserve his church. He rules over creation so that it serves his church. But we move on here and we see Elijah still remaining in hiding and things are not getting any easier for him as he waits upon the Lord, and the brook begins to dry up. We read at verse 6, And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And we would say, so far so good. Everything's going according to plan. But now verse 7, And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. God had sent his prophets into hiding, and now the prophet himself thirdly experiences a desperate need for divine grace as well. The Bible says the brook dried up, and the point is Elijah was still there. Without water, Elijah would not live long either. And we read that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. It means God's judgment was still upon his people. No rain in the land. Those are ominous words. We think God could have maybe supplied water from the rock like he did for Israel in the wilderness, but God did not. Elijah experiences the awful consequences of Israel's apostasy as well. He realizes he desperately needs God's grace, too. He needs it. Without God's benevolence, congregation, without God's grace, we, we would all die as well. You know, we're really not so tough. We're really not so strong. We really are not self-sustaining people who kind of got everything in the bag, so to speak, and we can do and plan and live and move and make and manage and take care of ourselves. No, we're not. We're, we're frail. God can just come into our life in one small way and we're, we're on our backs. We're weak. We desperately need God's divine grace too. And Elijah is also uh, called upon to experience this desperate situation. He's, he's really in the same boat with the rest of his people. To sum up here, we say Elijah, he couldn't command the rain to come. He had to wait upon the word of the Lord as well to declare it when it was going to come. He was helpless. He was powerless. He was separated from God's own people. He couldn't expect any help from that quarter. 
God's judgment was upon his people. There was still no rain in the land. He's made to see his own desperate situation. And it, in effect, penetrates deep into Elijah's own body and soul. We can't help but think that he too is experiencing or seeing an illustration of what sin finally does to a people if they are not brought to repentance and do not taste of the goodness of God. That sin going unchecked will destroy us. It will consume us all. It will devour us. Sin unmediated by God leaves us in the throes of death. And the whole creation as well. We talk. We see how Paul in Romans 8 speaks about the whole creation groaning and being in travail, suffering from the bondage to decay. That's what sin does to, to the world. And here we see this drought coming on, something that it was, was not in uh, the normal way of things when we depend on God for his goodness, reign and prosperity, they were signs of God's blessings on his people and their faithfulness. But now, that's not happening. Elijah can't help himself. He can't save Israel. He can't change their hearts. He can't remove God's judgments. He can't change the weather. He experiences a desperate need of divine grace too. Elijah also needs a deliverer. He needs the Messiah as well, the promised son of David, whom God had promised long ago, of which, interestingly, Elijah was a prophet of, a prophet of the Lord to proclaim the mercies and the grace that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now Elijah realizes he needs a deliverer as well, a redeemer, a helper, And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. No rain. How desperately Elijah needed God's grace. But he had only one hope congregation. He knew that the Lord was faithful to his covenant promises. He knew the Lord had come to not simply destroy all his people once and for all and then be satisfied with that. Remember Jesus Christ who said, I did not come into the world to destroy the world, but that it would be saved through me. And that same principle holds here as well. The hope of a faithful God, faithful to his covenant, a God who would finally relent of his judgment and speak again in mercy and in grace to his people. There you have it. And such was fulfilled, as we read in Hebrews chapter 1 at the beginning, where we learn that God says in these last days, God has spoken to us through his only begotten Son, the exact uh, uh, representation of his being and that he is the only atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is your food and drink congregation. He is your, your living water. He is a living bread by which we not only have hope, but by which we have life, and in whom indeed we are righteous and redeemed and forgiven of all our sins.
and in whom we may enjoy forever that sweet and beautiful fellowship with God. Indeed, we are brought home to our God through our faith in these rich promises that are in Jesus Christ. Amen.